Welcome to the New Beginning Fellowship Church Sermon Podcast. We are glad you are listening to the teaching of the Word of the Lord. We pray that this message encourages you and builds your faith. We also pray that this message is only supplemental to your spiritual growth instead of being a replacement for daily personal Bible study, the pastor you should be submitted to, or the church God would have you to be an active member of. If you live within driving distance of Brobridge, Louisiana, we hope that you would come to visit us during one of our services on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. Service times, ministry information, and giving options are all located on our website at newbeginningfc.com or on our Facebook page at New Beginning Fellowship Church. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you. The book of Joshua, chapter 6. The book of Joshua, chapter 6. I want to talk to you this morning about a solemn thing. I want to talk to you about guarding the inheritance of the Lord. The Lord wants us to walk into His blessing, into His inheritance that He has given us. He promised Israel, Canaan land, and He said, Every place the sole of your foot shall tread. I have given you as an inheritance. I'll give you victory everywhere that you go. I'll drive your enemies out from you. I'll give you houses you didn't build, wells you didn't dig, vineyards you didn't plant. I'll send them out in pestilence. I'll even send in bees to drive the people out. I mean, right? What a merciful guy. He said, I'm going to send, you know, these insects to come and sting these people and bite these people that don't even want it no more so that you can get in and have it and I'll clear the bees out, right? I mean, just God is saying, in every way, I'm going to be working through my divine power to drive out these people from this promised land so that I can give it to you. And the greatest blessing that he's given them is he says, everywhere you go, I will be with you. And he so manifested his presence to the people of God in the desert as they wandered for 40 years. They were so fed and preserved and helped by the presence of God that when God was angry with their sin and would say to them, you know what? If you don't want me and you just want the blessing, you just go into the promised land. I'll send my angel to go and he will go and he'll fight for you and he'll war for you. And you can have all the stuff, but I'm not going with you because you don't even want me. And the people said, and Moses said, if you don't go, we're not going. We'd rather have our God in the desert than our God's promises without him. We want you. And they had learned to treasure the presence of the Lord, even though they didn't steward it well. Amen. And how many of us can say we know how valuable the presence of God is, and yet at times we live in ways that don't steward the presence of God well. We know the power of the Spirit of God and manifestation of the Spirit, and we want His presence, but how often do we do things that grieve the Spirit of the Lord, and we wonder why we only see Him halfway through praise and worship on Sunday, after we've been reminded for 30 minutes about Jesus, and after the Word of God has gotten into our hearts, and we've prayed and we've 
you've gone, oh yeah, the joy of the Lord. Oh yeah, the peace of the Lord. Oh, praise God for rest. Oh, praise the Lord. I'm filled with the Spirit of God. I can minister to others. My mouth should be filled with praises and not complaining. My mouth should be filled with Scripture and not the language of the world. My heart ought to be overflowing, not riding on empty. But then we get out and we do things that doesn't welcome the presence of the Lord. And that's where they were. They were in this middle place between, Lord, we want you, but sometimes our mindsets go to other ways and we don't listen to you and we do things that drive you away. And God was bringing them after 40 years in the wilderness into the promised land. And God begins with giving them incredible victories. But the Lord begins to teach them, yes, my power is with you. My work is with you. I'm going to do mighty things through your lives. But it is not just blessings that I give to you. It is severe responsibility. Amen? Severe responsibility. As serious as the blessings of the Lord are, so as serious are the responsibilities of the Lord. Remember, the apostle said in his letter, he said, I have not withheld from you both the goodness and the severity of God. I told you about both. God is so good, so kind, and so merciful, but do not take him lightly. He is so dear to you as a father, but he is also your judge. And this morning, we're going to see a scripture that reminds us to pursue with all of our heart the blessings of the Lord but that we must be faithful to God and remember that He's God and not us. Amen? Amen. Joshua chapter 6, we're going to read a lot of Scripture this morning. And I plan to just talk to you about it a few minutes and then we're going to pray. We're going to have an altar call. It says this, Joshua chapter 6, this is after God brings them to Jericho. They've already crossed the Jordan River And the first place that God takes them is one of the most fortified cities in all of Canaan, right? He starts off with a whopper, right? He starts off with a big one as a demonstration of his power. It would have been easy for them to think, let's go, you know, knock off a couple small kingdoms, small cities, small towns and work our way up. And God says, I'm going to lead you to a big fish, to a big deal so that you will learn to trust me. And so he brings them to Jericho and he tells them, you're not going to fight by your schemes and plans and militaristic plans, which are important, but you've got to learn to fight by faith before you learn to fight by tactic. Amen? Amen? Are tactics important? Is wisdom important? Are those things? Yes, there's a lot of wisdom to living the Christian life, but it has to be started off in faith. And so he takes them to Canaan land and uses the worst possible tactic you can imagine. You're going to go get around Jericho and you're going to walk around it and say nothing. Oh, wonderful tactic. We're going to show them exactly how many people we have. We're going to wear ourselves out. We're not going to have any weapons and we're going to do nothing that affects them tactically in a military advantage. Wonderful. Oh, and we're going to do that six days in a row. Even better. And we're not even allowed to talk while we do it. Great. This is going to be so much fun. And then the last day, the seventh day, we're going to have to walk around the thing seven times. We're all going to be tired Not a lot of tactical advantage. And then we're going to shout. 
been at what point in your militaristic training did they teach you the importance of shouting in unison, right? What, where did that fall on, you know, at what point? We're going to blow the ram's horn and we're all going to shout. Yay, great. Military tactics at work. What does it say? Joshua chapter 6, verse 15. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon you. The Lord was teaching them that in this place, they have so profaned the name of the Lord. And if you ever do history on the book of Joshua and you study Jericho, it was so profane, so sinful, so disobedient, so evil that God says nothing in this place needs to be preserved for you. Normally, the one who goes in and fights gets the spoils of war and these are the benefits for you. But I've judged everything in that place and you don't get to keep any of it. Devote it to destruction. But if you associate with that, you identify with that, you make that your own and it has been devoted to destruction, it will affect you and devote you to destruction. You will mingle together these things. This idea for devoted is also used for the people of Israel. And it's this idea of choosing or set apart or making holy technically is the idea. And the idea is you, you make it for a specific purpose, right? So here you are set apart to the Lord for blessing. And here this is set apart for destruction. This is approved. This is disapproved. This is what God chooses to bless. This is what God chooses to curse. And when you bring the one into your circle, into your sphere, it pollutes you. It contaminates you and it will bring judgment on you. And listen to what he says. Verse, 9, verse 18, but you keep for yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him and they captured the city. When they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. 
And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Skip down. Verse 1, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not, do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, Why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? They have a victory. Someone in the camp sins, and then the next battle that they fight, they lose it corporately. They lose it together. And Joshua goes, Lord, were you with us, and now you're not with us? What is happening? Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, lied, and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by household, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who was taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. 
So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought near, brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clans of Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. He brought near his household man by man, and Achan the son of Camri, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, or obedience to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. I want to talk to you this morning about bringing sin and the things of the world into the camp. Bringing sin and the things of the world into the camp. Can we pray? Living God, you must come and you must teach us. You must help us to understand your ways. There is a grave responsibility that we have been given. To us has been given blessings and freedom and liberty and joy that a million years could never unfold. We could never discover it all. Surely the blessings of the Lord are treasures without measure. But so are our duties and our responsibilities. And the day that we forget that we are people saved out from the world to live different than the world is the day that we lose the blessing, is the day that we lose our distinction. Teach us, Lord, that we are not a people alone, but we are a people together, and that what one does affects the other, and that our lives must be in service to you and to our brethren every day, even in the secret things in the hidden things, in the things that we call private and alone, but surely they will reach out and affect others. Help us, Lord. Teach us. Show us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. What is the point of this story? Frankly, I think the thing that is most obvious to us 
is that sometimes God acts in ways that we think, think are extreme and unfair. That is the general first opinion of most people who read this text. That is mean and it's not fair. Why? I don't understand. What do you mean, Lord, when you say, verse, chapter 7, verse 1, but the people of Israel broke faith? No, 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 Lord. You've, you've mistaken. One man broke faith. One man reached his hand to what you said not to reach for. One man brought something into the camp. One man, not everyone. There were millions of people making other decisions to say, we will be faithful. And one man made a decision to say, I will break faith. And yet you judge us all. When we rejoice in the covenant power of Jesus Christ, we think of the blessings of that. Look what the blood has accomplished. Forgiveness, salvation, holiness, healing, joy, the gift of the Holy Ghost. Praise God, we have a covenant with Jesus. Yes, we have a covenant. Not me and Jesus. This is not alone. This is Jesus and his people as a whole. And our culture is so focused on the individual, on the person, on the one that we forget the responsibility of being the people together. And we forget that what one person does affects the other. And this is the problem that you find most often in the churches is a problem that has become a part of the church culture, right? Most of the things addressed in the new covenant are not an individual person's sins, It is the way that individual people have embraced mindsets, ideas, thoughts, and behaviors that then influences another person and another person and another person until it becomes a part of the church culture and then that problem faces everyone, right? That's what culture is. Culture is when things, mindsets, lead to behaviors that spreads from one person to a general group of people, and all of them may have different reasons, different attitudes, different thoughts for why they do what they do, but they are influenced by others. And here, this is the point, this is what I want to talk to you about, is that God understands community and he understands culture. And so what God is often fighting against in the word of God when he deals with the one person that affects everyone is he's trying to prevent one person's sin from affecting the whole culture. Amen? Most of the time what God is addressing is the whole culture. But when he addresses the individual or he allows it to affect all of the people, it is because he's trying to stop it from becoming a trend of culture in his people. Amen? The reason we have every single problem we have today is because the decisions of one person goes to all of the people associated with it. Adam and Eve. Two people, one family, affecting billions of people all over the world living in sin. Here, the son of Achan affecting all of the people. What about in the book of Acts? The book of Acts, the husband and the wife, right? Ananias and Sapphira. God, why? 
would you deal so severely that just one family conspires to lie to the Holy Ghost and do one sin and yet you drop them dead with no chance to repent, no opportunity to make it right? Why deal so severely? Because what was happening was so pure and so precious that I cannot tolerate this and allow it to spread and create a culture of compromise in the church. I've got to deal with it to preserve the culture of holiness. Amen? God cares about what is happening in the church. And we can't pretend that we live for ourselves. And so God sees the sin of Achan and he says, the people of Israel as a whole have broken faith. Now, if you don't like the idea of one person representing the whole and it affects everyone, you need to take the new covenant and throw it away because that is the premise of the gospel and salvation is that one person did something that everyone else gets to participate in and it is to their blessing. But I want you to consider with me When we ask this question, how is it fair for God to deal with all of the people in this way where the people have broken faith? Because God is teaching us that we cannot pretend that our decisions don't affect other people. Amen? Amen? I can't pretend that what I do doesn't affect you. Imagine that we all live, all of us here, in an apartment building, right? Uh, yesterday we were at the Fakoris dropping the kids off and the Menards have sold their home. They're building a house and for the time being they're living in a camper on their property. And I thought, man, this is the body, right? We're just all living together. Let's start a commune. We'll just get a bunch of campers out there. All live together, play in the field, mud ride and let the kids play out. It's just great country living, right? But then, you know, the whole cult thing doesn't look good. And, you know, so we're not going to do that. But imagine that we all live together, Right? And we're in an apartment building. And I say, what I do doesn't affect you. And so in my apartment, I get to do whatever I want. And you leave the crumbs on the floor and you leave the food out on the counter. And you always let all of your faucets drip and you don't matter. And it gets underneath the cabinets. And you don't run the, uh, the AC. And then all of a sudden, the walls are full of moisture. And all of a sudden, water is dripping from my floor into your ceiling. And the mildew that's spreading onto my walls gets onto the other side of the wall and starts to go into your apartment. And the rats and the roaches that are in my apartment begin to go out to the rest of the uh, apartment. And all of a sudden, before you know it, the whole place is filled with the corruption that came from my decisions. Amen? And we cannot pretend that our decisions are alone affect us alone. Do you remember what God said to Abraham? Do you remember what he said to him? He said, this is the promise. I will multiply you. I will multiply your seed. Abraham, your faith and who you have come to be, I've called you out from the world. I've put a circle around you. I've said, you are mine. And I've said, come out from your family and your people and live separate unto me. And you're a mess, right? And we've all read Genesis. They were a mess, but God was changing them. God was at work in them. God was doing things in their heart and in their lives and creating a culture of different behavior. And he said, what you are, I will multiply as many as the sands of the sea, 
and the stars of heaven. What you are, I will replicate throughout the earth. Let me ask you. And he says, when he does that, and he says, I will make you a blessing to all nations. Right? If I take what you are and multiply you, it will be a blessing to everyone you come in contact with. That's the point. Amen? You are so unique, so different. You're saved. You're transformed. You're changed. That when I call you out from the world and out from the culture, and I'm at work in your life, and I multiply you, and I send you back out, the way that you behave and who you are will be a blessing to the rest of the world. And you have to view your faith and your life in that light. If God took what you are and multiplied it and spread it out, would it be a blessing to the people of God or a curse to the people of God? Would it be a blessing to the world or a curse to the world? Amen? Would we be happy that what you are is multiplied? Or would it be a grief? Now, can we all remember that there were times when Abraham was not the blessing that he was supposed to be? Right? Two times. Two times. How many times? Two times. Bruh. Two times. Two times this man goes to a city. He's like, my wife's too pretty, and they're going to take her, and they're going to kill me. And two times this dude says to his wife, hey, and could you imagine the second time, wives, how many times have your husbands come to you, pitched the same stupid idea that they've done before, and it took every ounce of the Holy Ghost in you to close your mouth and go, God, get him. God, I will submit you to deal with him right? And so the second time he's like, Hey, this didn't work out so good the first time, but, uh, I'm going to need you to say that you're my sister and not my wife. And, uh, I don't want to die. And so, uh, you're a woman, you're not allowed to testify in court against a male. And so you're kind of just have to bite your tongue, close your mouth and go along with this. And another man is going to take you into his house, right? And you think your husband is an idiot. Have mercy. And both times, no testifying, right? And both times when the king finds out, he says to Abraham, why would you do this to me? Why would you do this to me? What, what did I do to you that you would bring this trouble on me? God wakes up one king in the middle of the night and says to him in a dream, you are a dead man because you've got another man's wife in your house. And he says, Abraham is my prophet. Can you imagine? I wouldn't have said that. I would have been like, hey, he's an idiot that I kind of know, but I don't really know him, know him. But he's, you know, and I'm just, I don't want you to sin, king. I'm doing it for you. And so just send him and his wife out. No, he says, he's my prophet. He's acting very foolish right now. He's making bad decisions. You need to get this woman out of your house. But both times... This man that's supposed to be a blessing to all of the nations is a curse to them because he's not acting the way that God has called him to act. Amen? And we cannot pretend that what we do doesn't affect other people. And everything in the New Testament that addresses problems, almost all of it is dealing with church culture, right? Because it spreads to the others. So the sexual rampant behavior immoral behavior that's going on in Corinth, it's happening everywhere. And it's multiple kinds of sexual sin, 
right? Multiple Christians suing multiple other Christians, right? Multiple people are coming in, taking communion, and they're bringing their own food and wine, getting drunk off of it, and sinning in the church. And other people are sitting here starving to death because they're poor. Problems in the church culture because we cannot pretend that our decisions affect us alone, right? The book of James, all of you are warring and fighting and consuming one another. All of you are bickering and having these problems. And so God is dealing with it before it gets ingrained into the culture, right? There are two things that happen, two things that Achan takes for himself. He sees this garment. Notice that it starts with, I saw this garment. Does that remind you of anything? Adam and Eve. And Eve said, I saw the tree. That it was desirable. It was, it was good and it was desirable to make one wise. And all of a sudden she coveted, she longed, she yearned after it. And God says, there are things about this place that are so sinful they have no place in your life. And he looked at it and said, but I want it. I want, I know God has specifically called it out. He has pointed to it and said, these are symbols of this culture. And when people see that garment, they will be reminded of that culture. These things that are here, they associate with the place. And the place is so far gone that we've got to destroy everything there. And then the other thing was the gold and the silver and these things. And these were things that God says, these are my spoils of war. These are the things that I'm taking as the record, the witness that I have overcome this evil place. And so there's things here that I'm saying are sinful and they're not to be enjoyed. Destroy them all. And there are things that I'm saying, I want to be exalted over this place and you'll give these things to me to show that I'm God, I'm sovereign, and I triumphed over their evil and judgment. And these things Achan saw and said, I know God said this is so wrong, it shouldn't be embraced. And I know God says that this is for him and him alone as his trophy of victory over sin, but I want them for myself. And he took them for his own pleasure, for his own joy and for his own good. Somehow he justified it, right? Well, I'm fighting. I deserve this. No one will know. I'll never let other people know. Maybe I'll never wear the garment in public and I'll wait till we get somewhere else and I'll go sell it and get the money for it. Whatever his reasoning was, he thought that it was okay to bring sin into his house and it just won't affect anybody else. And yet it did affect other people. And what does it say happened? We wonder, Lord, how could you judge this man and his whole house? I'm not going to lie to you. I struggle with this. Lord, you killed him and his wife and his children? How? That just, that doesn't seem fair. You know what else doesn't seem fair? This. Verse 4, chapter 7. So about 3,000 men went up from there, from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. You know what's not fair is that 36 children 
at least 36 children, had to wake up without their daddy. Because this man brought something into the camp that God couldn't bless and work through. And he brought destruction on their house and their family. And we think, well, I can bring things into the church. I can control it. I can isolate it. I can keep it from affecting me. You know how many Christians that I've known that had things, I'm not talking about things that yeah, some self-righteous church people call the world and legalism and self, you know, and whatever, and, but they're not really sins and that they embrace in their life. I'm talking about things that they are truly embracing that they know is not right. They know it. They don't care. They embrace it. And they are pretty good at isolating that one thing and keeping that and it not affecting them. Maybe like Samson, who for 20 years avoids this terrible judgment for his sexual sin, and then when he is judged, it all comes crashing down on him. But for a while, they're able to keep it isolated and controlled where it's not destroying them, but they've influenced others to act in that way and embrace that sin and do that thing, and it destroys them. How many Christians have sat in church Talk about Jesus, they'll go to church and they do things that are clearly sin and worldly and wrong and they're okay. But what what they do in moderation, their children grow up, do and do in excess and it destroys them. They say, I can isolate it. I can keep it to myself. It doesn't affect me. And I tell you, this is something that we need to work on in our culture is understanding what is worldliness. Because we're in a middle ground where many of us have come from backgrounds where, like we talked about last week, the only thing that isn't a sin is going to church and eating, right? Remember I told you that pastor last week, I told you, he told me one time, he said, I grew up in a church culture where the only thing that wasn't sin was going to church and eating at a buffet, and so I grew up to be a fat preacher, right? Just, that was it. That's the only thing that isn't a sin, and then, so we've, we've gone, you know what, there are things that were called sin and worldly that, that it was maybe out of a good desire to please the Lord, but they just were making everything sin except going to church and you couldn't enjoy life and life was miserable and overbearing and oppressive and it just, there was no joy in it. There was no pleasure in it. And First Timothy chapter 5 says, God has richly given us all things to enjoy and we ought to enjoy our life and we ought to enjoy this world because this is God's world and not the devil's world and we get to enjoy the things of this earth for the glory of God. God. Amen? Right? And so there are people who have nice things. They have a nice house. They have a nice car. They have a jet ski. They have boats or four-wheelers, and they are not worldly at all. They love the Lord, and they enjoy those things to the glory of God, and they're not worshiping those things. They've not put those things before the Lord. They give to the work of the Lord. They honor the Lord with their wealth. They support missions. They care about souls. They're not so entertained with the joy of life that they forget about the eternal things of God. They're not worldly and praise God Christians can have fun. Amen? And so we want our liberty in Christ, but there are things that we've swung so far to say, you know, we're not just calling things that self-righteous people have called worldly. Okay, we've gone to the point of actually saying there are things in the world that I'm covered by grace and I can live that way and say those things and do those things and it really doesn't matter. And so we've got to learn the balance. I read a quote just last week or the week before that helped me so much and it made sense of so many scriptures on what it means worldliness. And I want to share it with you. Dr. Tony Evans 
said, worldliness is adopting the worldview of a culture that leaves out God. Amen? Think about that. Worldliness is adopting the worldview of a culture that leaves out God. That's worldliness. The spirit of the world at having, having influence of a culture, and that culture isn't mindful of God, isn't thinking about God, it doesn't know the word of God, doesn't know the commands of God, it doesn't honor the Lord, it doesn't love the Lord, it's not walking in God's ways, and it views the world through its godless lenses. And it's how it thinks about money, it's what it thinks about sex, it's what it thinks about pleasure and entertainment and fun and religion and worship and all of those things. And that's how it thinks about it. And it can be different in every culture. But worldliness is viewing things through the lens of leaving God out. That's the point. Right? And so there are things that we've called worldliness that aren't worldliness. Somewhere, probably in California or New York, there's a preacher with holes in his jeans and the coolest shoes you've ever seen, and his hair is full of product, and he looks like a poster, and, but he has no desire to be seen or loved or worshipped. That's just how he grew up. That's what he thinks about clothes and hair. He doesn't own a suit. He doesn't know why you would need to wear it. Wait, some of you wear suits to churches. I don't understand. And he's not worldly in the slightest. And there's someone out there wearing a three-piece suit, preaching out of the Bible that everyone agrees is good, it's old and traditional, and it's good, and it's right, and he loves the attention and thinking people think well of me and people love me and people idolize me. It's not about the clothes or the hair or the way, oh, wait a minute, you did a double bass drum on worship this morning. That's worldliness, brother. We've got to get it out. That's not of the Lord. There's someone singing traditional hymns with all the right theology and yet they are as worldly in their worship as they can be because it's all about them and not about Jesus. And so we've got to redefine what worldliness is. It's not if it's cool, it's worldly, right? How many of you have been to churches where, you know, pink pews, they got pink and maybe blue lights going on the background and that's not worldly, right? But you turn the lights a little bit lower and you put the lights not on the floor on the back wall, but or not from the ceiling on the back wall, but from the floor on the back wall and they're a little bit cooler lights and that is worldly, We need, we need to seek the Lord for understanding about what does it mean to be worldly. Should, should we do the worship that way? Should we have the light? Should we not have the light? Should it be like this or not? We let the devil in because we painted the, the back wall black, right? It looks better on the camera. No, no, you wanted to embrace darkness. I'm not going to lie. I did have a mini panic attack when we decided to do it. And I realized the weekend they were doing it, I was going to be out of town preaching somewhere else. And there was no, I didn't tell anyone to explain it. And I'm like, oh, they're going to think we're trying to be worldly. And look, they got a black back wall. Oh my God, you're trying to look like a club. Fun is not worldly. Cool is not worldly. Different thing. There are mindsets and ideas behind behaviors that make things worldly. And here's the point that he chose to say, this is clearly something God has said is worldly. It's sinful. God has rejected it, but I want it and I'm bringing it in. And I think that it's okay. 
or there are things that God has put his hand on to say, these things are mine and no one else's. And he says, I don't care, I'm bringing it in. And the point is that it pollutes the atmosphere. It pollutes the corporate unity that we have. What does it say that he broke faith with the covenant of the Lord? And it brought judgment on the people as a whole. And God had to expose it as a whole. Do you notice that God did not just tell Joshua who it was? I remember for years thinking, what's the point? Like if God is directing you, why doesn't God just go, it's the guy over there with the tent that he's like, nobody come inside, right? Why not just tell, it's Achan. The point was that what God was dealing with was an individual And even though it was only one man that had chosen to sin, God had to say to each of the people, all of you need to examine your hearts. All of you need to consider, is there something that I've done to disobey the Lord? Is there something that I chose to bring in that will pollute what God is trying to do? That God wants to give blessing, but I'm trying to bring a curse because I don't want to trust God to bless me. I'm going after the world to get it for myself. And so he judges tribe by tribe and clan by clan and family by family all the way down to the man. And this is why there are scriptures that say things like, search me, O God, and try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Notice that God gave them a time to prepare and to be introspective and to think on what they had done. Sanctify your heart. Seek the Lord. What would have happened if Achan, instead of waiting to be found out, had a run to Joshua and said, I've sinned against the Lord and I was wrong and I want to confess to what I've done and let God have his righteous way and I'll just submit myself to the judgment of the Lord and if he has mercy, he has mercy and he judges, he judges. No, but this man could hear the word of God and have an opportunity to deal with his own heart and he said I want to cling to the things that I have and hope that I don't get found out he was willing to wait and be judged and so I say to you the need of our heart is for us to turn our hearts to the Lord and let God have his way brother Renee would you come I want to invite you this morning to seek the Lord about mindsets and ideas, behaviors and things that we do that we need to seek the Lord for. When I was a new Christian, I so wanted to live for the Lord. I was looking for sin everywhere. I was willing to call things that weren't sin a sin and there were several things that I said, the Lord dealt with me about not doing this. And I committed myself to not do that, whatever that thing was. And then after time, Well, I kind of want to do that. And really, I don't think the Lord showed me. It was just kind of being overzealous. I'm not talking about trying to find some law or some rule that you can try to manufacture so you can feel holy. If you're in Christ, you're holy. And if you're living sensitive to the Holy Ghost, you're holy. I'm not talking about trying to create some law. What I'm talking about is living honestly before the Lord and letting God search your heart letting the Lord deal with you because we cannot pretend that what we do only affects us, that we are a body, we are a corporate people. And if we're gonna serve the Lord, we have to all be able to serve the Lord together. Amen. And it's our responsibility to seek to be what Jesus has called us to be and to seek the good of the body and to say to the Lord, I wanna be sure, Lord, 
that if you take what I am and you bless me and you multiply me and you send me out into this world, that I will be a blessing to the nations. Can we seek the Lord for that? Lord, we ask you that you would come. Pray and seek the Lord, saints. Let him have his way in your heart. Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have come to do a work in our hearts that only you can do. Lord, we ask you that there would be nothing in us. No mindset, no attitude, no way of thinking or behaving that we know is wrong. Lord, we've come to realize that it's not a sin to have a TV in our house, but how many of us had said under grace, I can watch anything that I want? How many of us have realized clothes that it's called worldly, that we said, that's not worldly, and I can wear that, but we've become immodest, sensual, or proud and trying to draw attention to ourselves. What are the ways that we've said enjoy life and the things of this world and say that God has richly given us all things to enjoy, but I've become covetous and idolatrous of money. And I can't honor the Lord with my wealth because I'm too busy honoring myself with it. How many of us had said that the songs that we sing don't have to be old traditional songs of worship? but our favorite songs to sing are more focused on us than the glory of God. We talk about Jesus like he's a boyfriend and not the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one who will slay all of his enemies with the sword that comes out of his mouth. How many of us have exalted, exalted in the grace of God, but we've allowed it to make us take him lightly? How many of us have cried and demanded our liberties in Christ and we've let our liberties become an excuse to live in the flesh and have the wrong priorities Lord you've got to come and show us and teach us show us what are the spoils and the things of the world and of culture that you would have us take and redeem and say Lord let these things be the praise of your glory and what are the things that you have placed your hand on and said it is devoted to destruction and it's not pleasing to me and it should have no part in your life what are the things of this world that you've laid your hand on and said this is mine and you should honor me with it and submit it to me and yet we've said Lord I want to consume it upon my lust and get it for myself Lord teach us to live in the light of your glory and your holiness and your righteousness, to honor you and worship you and preserve the culture of the people of God and let it be holy unto the Lord. Deal with our hearts, Lord. Saints of God, do what Joshua told the people. Consecrate yourselves to the Lord. Set your heart on him. Let him deal with you. And let him say what he wishes to say. Have your way in us, Lord. Seek the Lord, saints.